friends, would you open up to Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1, and starting at verse 26, and we will read through verse 32. Once you have it, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Romans chapter 1, 26 to 32, page 939 in the Pew Bibles. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So let me pray before we jump into this. Father, we know clearly that all of Scripture is God-breathed and that it is profitable. It is good for us to not only know this in our heads, but for it to convict our hearts, to make us more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that your Spirit will lead me in such a way that I am pastoral but clear. That you'll open our ears and our hearts. That you will help us to be in ways that are appropriate. That we would be compelling with the message of the Gospel. That our hearts would be, God, just broken and compelled to offer hope with clarity, offer love and compassion. So Father, this morning, teach us. Teach us by Your Word. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll be honest, there are some Sundays where as you look in text, you might wonder how relevant some particular passages might be. And is it really relevant for our our time, our place, our contemporary culture? I remember preaching through the the book of Nehemiah and there there were whole sections of the book of Nehemiah that just gave lists of names. I don't know if those of you who were part of us at that time, you're going, really? We are going to 
read this and you're going to preach a whole sermon, a 50, 45 minute sermon on this. And you begin to wonder, how is this relevant to our time and our age? I also find if you, if you read and study certain sections of the, of the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus, you might find it hard to, to know what was written back then. How does it apply to our 21st century? The book of Leviticus. It's a, it's a part of the canon of Scripture, Genesis through, through Revelation. It's all inspired by God and useful. It's profitable for us. So how, how does it apply? And, or if you've ever tried to read the Bible through a year, you might find that there are certain sections of the Bible which are harder to connect to than others. The book of Numbers. How does that connect to the Gospel? To me, in the 21st century. But today, our text is anything but irrelevant. We are going to talk, what we're going to be talking about this morning is important, it is relevant, and yes, it is extremely controversial. We're going to see how the book of Romans addresses just our very fallen condition. Your fallen condition, our fallen condition, the, the condition of the world outside, and how that condition itself expresses itself into multiple areas, including sexuality. And specifically, homosexuality. This is probably one of the most important sections of, of the Bible regarding this topic. It, helping us understand the world that we live in, the morality related to our sexuality. So if you were here last week or the couple of weeks, you knew that this, this was coming. And I'll be absolutely honest, I sweat I'm probably already dripping right now thinking about how, how do I pastorally connect this where it's not a fundamentalist pastor who is beating on his pulpit and pointing out people, calling down hail, fire, and brimstone on congregation and this world. You've known this is coming. I've known this is coming. And my guess is that some of you have come here with a bit of anticipation. And, and that's good. And I'm Glad you're eager to hear this sermon. But if you're new today, if this is your first time, your second time, you haven't heard everything leading up to it, you know that we are in the middle of we are in the middle of a study of Romans. And the next series of verses is on what what we're addressing is this section right here dealing with sexuality. So this, for me, is not, I would not choose a soapbox sermon like this. It's not something I want to stand up weekly and be preaching on. But this is just a journey, a natural journey through our walk through the book of Romans. However, there are probably some of you who are here, and today's verses probably make you quite nervous, a little anxious. The reason is because maybe your past includes some of the things that we are going to be talking about. Or perhaps you are currently struggling with same-sex attraction. Or, or you know somebody who is very close to you and identifies himself or herself in this lifestyle. You may be here today even convinced that same-sex relationships are appropriate and even normal and right. 
So here's what I hope to do this morning. This is kind of my goal. I want to carefully and lovingly help us to see what this text is saying about humanity. Our brokenness and our sexuality. And I want to show you how the Gospel ultimately is the solution to everything. Including the most intimate desires and actions. So by way of review, we always got to kind of back up before we go forward. We observed last week that the book of Romans is set, sets the back, the black, very dark background against which the beautiful gospel is able to be displayed. This is the, this is the theme from which chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3 is set. We, we need this this much material, on the brokenness of our condition because while most people know they are imperfect, and I'm flawed, yeah, you know, we all make mistakes. Yeah, ah, well, oops again. Or, you know, oh well. They need to be desperate. We need to be desperate in order to totally embrace the Gospel. We need to be desperate because we understand our condition and we say, I need Christ. I need Jesus. I need this ultimate solution in my life. So Paul is giving us an overwhelming analysis of the problem, of the problem in order that we learn about the consequences of our unbelief, which include, one, the wrath of God. It includes the suppressing of truth, the denial of God. It includes self-worship, and ultimately it leads to self-destruction. So we ended last week in verse 24 with the phrase, and God gave them up. God gave them up. So today I want to show you three steps of the divine removal, the removal of divine restraint, where God is holding back His his uh, removal. Or to say it differently, there are three ways that God gives us up, if you will. So our text today just takes the main thought from last week's message that unbelief has consequences and it drives it home more deeper and it drives it more specific. Our text shows us how far humanity truly has fallen. So we need to begin by restating the problem because this text is designed as a diagnostic text. It helps us diagnose what really is a problem, showing us our need for the Gospel. So please, please, please resist the urge to think that verses 24 to 32 are meant to be judgmental, they are meant to be hopeless, and they are meant to be unkind. That's not what this is about. Rather, these, these verses are meant to be ultimately show us the problem of the human condition so that we may be directed toward the, towards the gospel. That is the purpose of this. So there are two places that we can see the problem absolutely clearly. And they are connected to this tragic exchange. The truth of God for a lie. The truth of God. The exchanging. The truth about God. His design. His purpose. Your purpose. The reality of who God is for a lie. So the first place is in verses 22 to 32. And the second is in verse 22 to 23. Sorry. And the second is in verse 25. 
claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is forever blessed. The, the key word in both texts is exchanged. They exchange. The problem is the way in which humanity devalues the glory of God in comparison to the value we give to ourselves, that we apply to ourselves. The exchange is a decision to ascribe to ourselves or to creation what really ultimately belongs to God Himself, right? And so, what belongs to God Himself? Affection, worship, obedience, gratitude. Those are all things that we are to give to God. So, it is to exchange the glory of God for the glory of man, or to make it more personal. It is to do what I think rather than what God thinks. So at the core of this exchange is misplaced worship or idolatry. But this is not only a worship problem. The exchange is expressed in desires. It's expressed in longings. It's expressed in thoughts. It's expressed in action. So don't make the mistake that this idolatrous exchange is limited to something spiritual or something that's esoteric or something that's kind of out there. No, the reality is if you look in verse 23 that this tragic exchange resulted in the creation of images. It moved, didn't it, from thoughts to action. And more specifically, verse 25 connects idolatry to actual service. In other words, there is a direct connection between worship and work, between affections and our actions. What you give your heart to is what you move towards. And you can see this in a gajillion different ways in all of our lives, can't we? Where your affections are, your greatest affections, your greatest desires, where you give obedience to, there's often action that follows. We, we can see this in our culture with um, uh, the worship of children. None of us have this problem, right? Our, but our greatest affections, our desires, are given to our children in how we, how we do activity how we plan our days how we plan our it can even be the worship of our spouse that my circle of life is so small that it only includes the one that i have given my heart and my soul to and it sounds like worship to me your spouse is not the center of the universe neither is your job so Human beings, whether we realize it or not, human beings were made for worship. That's what we've been created to, to do, to be about. Everyone worships someone or something. So Romans 1 gives us a diagnosis of our condition. Human worshipers who tragic are human humans are 
are worshipers who tragically exchange the glory of God for the glory of creation. That's ultimately what the problem is. That's the diagnosis. And this exchange is the root of all sin and it is the essence of our rebellion against God. It is the problem under the problem. So it is why we are so prone, you and I are so prone to self-centeredness. Why we are so given to our own comfort, right? What makes us safe and comfortable, that's probably the biggest church problems in the church is that we, we, we worship our comfort. That's why we stay in our bubble. Different kind of idolatry right there. Why we are so fascinated with heroes. Even pastors are, are mesmerized by heroes. We even have heroes that we love to worship. Dead guys. You've heard how many times I've quoted the dead guys, my favorite dead guy, John Piper or Ligon Duncan. I love and am fascinated by these heroes of the faith. Something can be wrong with that as well. It also helps us to understand why we're so prone to desire things that we know are wrong. That we know are wrong. The problem under the problem is the exchange of God for ourselves. Now, I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your mind because it is key to understand what is following. Paul links this dark exchange to three examples or three effects that happen. So having identified the problem underneath the problem, he shows us the manifestations, the way it works out of our our misplaced worship. And they are directly connected to this threefold term, or this threefold use of the term, gave them up. If you look in Scripture, you see it in verse 24, in verse 26, and then again in verse 28. Three times, the trading for God's glory, for our own glory, surfaces in three overlapping areas. Overlapping areas. What we do, what we desire, what we think. What we do, what we desire, what we think. They're overlapping. They are overlapping because all of them relate to actions since there is a direct connection between this tragic exchange and how we live it out. But each effect gives us a different example, a different way of looking at how we express our idolatry. So there's three effects. And I want to cover the first and the third first. And then I'm going to come, so in other words, I'm going to start at the beginning, go to the end, and then I'm going to come back to the second one because I think that's the one that needs to be addressed very carefully pastorally and be given a little bit more time. So let's start with the first one. The first effect is we are given to lust leading to impurity. An effect of the exchange, we are, we are given to lust. Leading to impurity. So the first effect is probably the most general of all. And it's designed to make the connection between the spiritual exchange and the physical effect. It is meant to link the problem of physical impurity with the tragic exchange. So I want you to notice a few things. First of all, the word exchange brackets 
verse 24. It, it, is, it is found in verse 23, in verse 25, and verse 24 is connected to both of these verses by the word therefore and because. So clearly, clearly there is a connection going on here. You also see the phrase, God gave them up, is connected to verse 18 and the idea of the wrath of God. In other words, God is giving us up to our desires and that is part of God's judgment. You don't have to worry if our culture is under God's judgment. You don't have to say, huh, I wonder if this is a result of God's judgment, of God's, God's divine action. That judgment is already being revealed according to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. And we talked about how it's saying it's actively taking place. It is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is happening. And the way that it manifests, manifests itself is seen is through the sins that plague our culture. Is God going to judge us for our, our immorality? Our immorality is the judgment. The expression of God's judgment is to allow our lusts for our heart, the lust of our heart to be expressed in impurity. The word is one that Paul uses in places as a, a blanket term for sexual sins. And so there is a direct connection between the judgment of God and all kinds of sexual impurity. It is important that you see here from the outset that all sexual sins, all thoughts, minds, heterosexual, homosexual, all kinds of sins, sexual sins is the effect of the exchange of God's glory for our own. So before we even get to the subject of homosexuality that's found in verses 26 and 28, we need to see how Paul positions his very argument. What, is he, what he is really saying here is important, and namely it's this. Our exchange for God, for ourselves, has real and physical and even sexual consequences. Real and physical and sexual consequences. So when we exchange the, the glory of God for the glory of the creature, we, our, our worship is off. There are real physical and sexual implications. There are consequences. And two, every aspect, every aspect of sexual impurity is part of what it means for God to have given us up. So it's easy for many angry preachers to be preaching on this and doing a lot of finger-pointing, but a lot of that finger-pointing comes right back. There is a lot of sexual sin and disorder in our world. I don't care who you are. There's struggle everywhere. So just think for me, just for a moment, what the world would be like if there was no sexual impurity. None. Think about it. Just think about it. 
Imagine marriages that were never violated. Some of you are going, that would save me a lot of grief. Because I come from broken homes because of sexual immorality. Imagine if purity, that purity was always, always a protected gift. Imagine that nakedness was never displayed. Imagine children who could always feel safe. Imagine fathers and mothers who never had to worry about the safety of their daughters or their sons. You could say, go hang out with your friends. I don't care. And you never have to worry about what is taking place. Imagine relationships that were always healthy and always respectful and always appropriate. Imagine that. Imagine unplanned pregnancies that never happened. Imagine that certain diseases would even be totally eradicated, be eradicated. It sounds like the dream world, doesn't it? It's hard to overestimate the destruction of our culture, our society, our families, and our own souls that sexual sin has had. And if we're all really honest with ourselves, we all have some struggle of sexual sin one way or the other. Maybe we should go around and poll each other right now, right? Some of you go, no, no. But the reality is that we have all been impacted in one way or in the other, personally, maritally, familially, culturally, by sexual sins. And the problem under the problem is the tragic exchange of God's way for our own way. But here's, let, let me jump to the next effect that we get from the exchange. We are given to a depraved mind leading to all manner of unrighteousness. I think it's the next one. Or the previous one. That's it. We're going to come back to the the one that she had up there that I probably had out of order. But, but let's look at this and look at the widespread consequences that are found. Again, we see this phrase that God has given them up in verse 18. But here it's connected to the mind. It's connected to the mind. The previous effect was connected to lust and to sexual sin. Here the issue is a depraved mind, a debased mind, and, and a laundry list of evil. If you look at it, it's a laundry list. Paul wants to see that failing to acknowledge God in verse 28 leads to a mental justification of far-reaching sinful behaviors. A depraved mind leads to depraved living. A depraved mind leads to depraved sinning. And verses 29 to 31 provides three groupings of sins. First, there's just general devices, or devices, vices, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. In other words, these are terms which are just general descriptions of human depravity. Sin is comprehensive. All manner of unrighteousness. It's kind of those blanket, these are the general categories. And then there are five full-blown kind of sins. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliceness. 
maliceness, maliciousness. Gosh. These are the kind of issues that we see throughout the human experience and even in our own hearts. But then there are 12 societal ills. You look at these. Gossips. Slanderers. Haters of God. Insolent. Haughty. Boastful. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Foolishness. Foolish. Faithless. Heartless, ruthless. This is kind of, kind of the list that is meant to be absolutely overwhelming. One after another, we are just pummeled with the reality of our broken world. So 22, if you count, or sorry, 21, if you count them, are listed here. 21 sins are listed here so that we are reminded about the extent of the unrighteousness in our culture and in our own hearts. We're reminded 21 different ways that we are breaking that, that relationship. We're exchanging the glory of God for the glory of man. And So Paul's day is not unlike our day. Sin was rampant. Sin is rampant. And yet, it is easy to forget the truly destructive and tragic reality of the exchange. But if that isn't enough, there's one more thing to note here. Verse 32 tells us that our minds are so warped by our rebellion that we not only do these things that are wrong, but we actually cheer one another on in our sinfulness. Whole movements are, are wrapped around this. Cheering me on. I need you to validate me while I'm in my sin. And we see whole movements that get wrapped up in this. Our minds are so deluded that we are celebrating our own destruction. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So the tragic exchange of God's glory has so warped and deformed our mind that human humans actually recruit others. Recruit others to join them in self-destruction. Individual rebellion is never enough. We aggressively try to persuade others to drink the same deadly poison of self-worship. And that's part of the challenge. Laura and I were having this discussion with uh, some family members last night about getting outside of our, our little Christian bubble. And it's kind of getting into a dangerous place, right? Because it doesn't feel as safe anymore because you can feel yourself kind of getting sucked into this deadly poison that they are offering and say, but isn't this good? Isn't this fun? What about this? Let's have a little recklessness here. Let's joke a little bit here. Let's talk about them over here. Let's have this. Let's have... And it goes crazy. And there's a kind of an active recruiting. Come on, join, join in in our, our debased mind, our debased living, our... Join in. But yet, as Christians, we're not called to live inside the bubble of safety. Right? You and I, we as a church family, are called to be people who step out of the Christian bubble 
and say, send me, Lord. Where you want me to go, I will go. And the thing that makes me safe is that I am resting in the gospel of Jesus Christ and I am anchored there. I'm anchored there. Therefore, I can go like John and Missy Camiola. I can go to the brothels in Joss, Nigeria and find my deepest security in Christ as I go into darkness. I can have these conversations with people who are absolutely reckless with their life and have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of man. I can eat and drink with them. Heavens, Christ Himself was known as the friend of sinners who ate and drank with sinners. So too we are called to do that. So our depraved minds not only justify what we know to be wrong, but they encourage others to join us in all manners of unrighteousness. So let's move on to the last effect of the exchange. One of the effects of the exchange is that we are given to dishonorable passions leading to homosexuality. This is probably one of the most controversial parts of this text. Whole books uh, by liberal scholars have been written about this. Trying to justify what Paul is really trying to say here. And we, we really don't understand it. And as culture moves on, we'll become more clear because of what we see going on in culture. All kinds of things have been going here. But I want you to see what Paul says here in this context. Not the context of culture. What, what is Paul saying here? Here, Paul is saying that homosexuality, he is presenting homosexuality here as one example, hear this, one example among many of the overall disordering and brokenness of our world. One of many. And for Paul, it was just as controversial and even countercultural for Paul to, to write this in this first century as it is for us to talk about in our 21st century. Why? Because homosexuality was a well-known part of the Roman culture. For example, historians believe that, the, that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were involved in homosexuality. So Paul is writing a very controversial, about a very controversial topic that could get him axed at any moment. He is speaking out against the emperor's activity. Yet Paul does what? He addresses it with clarity. So verse 26 expresses another um, expression of the uncoupling of God's restraint. And it is in giving us up to are dishonorable passions. This phrase is connected to what we read in verse 24. Dishonoring of their bodies and the failure to honor God in verse 21. So the, the failure to honor God is 
led to the dishonoring of the body, which led to the dishonorable passions. So to restate it simply, God gave them up to desires that were not part of God's design. That's not God's design. Paul further clarifies what he means by dishonorable passions by applying it to both men and women, right? So there's not just one category. He wanted us to be very clear. It applies to both genders. The the, the dishonoring passions are those that are contrary to nature or contrary to God's design. In other words, God's plan was for sexuality to be expressed beautifully in the covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. God created a man and a woman. And what did He do? He brought them together. Gave them to each other. And He commanded them what? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. You see, it's in Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and ever over every living thing that moves. So God designed their sexuality and their requisite passions to be part of the fulfillment of His design. So physiologically, He designed their sexuality sexuality. Sexuality to be the means by which the world would be filled with what? The image of God. The very first command given to Adam and Eve is directly linked to their passion to one another. The expression of sexuality in their covenant relationship would both affirm God's design and to fulfill His command. So when Paul says that it's against nature, he is referring to the very evidence of God's design and the first of God's commands. Homosexuality runs contrary to the basic design and to that very first command. Consider what would happen if homosexuality completely replaced God's design. In one generation, the human race would no longer exist. We would self-destruct. So part of the problem that we hear in this text is that it kind of gets squishy in our hearts, right? We hear this and we we have questions. Our our culture, what has our culture done? Our, Our culture has uncoupled sexuality from the creation command. Different things. And we have mostly made sexuality sexuality to be about what I want and what I desire and what feels good for me. We've made sexuality only about pleasure. And when God intended it to be the pleasurable obedience to a divine command in the context of divine design and a a covenant with the effect being that there would be more creation of image bearers. That's ultimately what's supposed to be happening. So So homosexuality is only one aspect 
of the disordering of God's design. But there is something about sexuality in the heart of God for the church that we have to talk about. Our sexuality is more than pleasurable obedience to God's design and fulfilling the Great Commission. It's more than that. In the book of Ephesians, Paul links the imagery of marriage between a man and a woman to God's care for the church. Listen to Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Why? Not just so you have a happy home. Not so that you don't have to deal with the in-laws or the outlaws. It goes on to say the two shall become one. Why? This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Therefore, sexuality is rooted in God's design for created order and a plan for redemption. It is a sacred dramatization of God's covenantal love for the church and His power in creation. Why does Paul list homosexuality so specifically? He does so because while homosexuality is only part of the disordering, it is the most vivid display of the exchange that we have talked about so far. Remember that the problem under the problem is the exchanging of the glory of God for an image like myself. Paul uses homosexuality as the most vivid and most intimate and most powerful example of the extent of that tragic exchange. So, Homosexuality, therefore, exchanges God's design for an image like me. And the disordering of our culture is clear and evident when men and women give up the God-given design and exchange it for the affection of one who is just like me. It's not that homosexuality is the worst sin than all the other ones listed. Be clear about that. The wrath of God is coming against all forms of ungodliness and all forms of unrighteousness. It's not the worst of the worst, but it is the most personal and is the most vivid illustration of the exchange of God's design for my desires. Homosexuality is listed here because it shows us the depth of our own personal brokenness. The tragic exchange extends so deeply into the fabric of humanity that we even alter something so personal as sexuality. So why is this topic so hard and why is it so volatile? I don't know if you've ever had this conversation with other people. They find out that you're an evangelical Christian and all of a sudden things get a little bristly. Sexuality, if you don't know, is deeply personal. Deeply personal. And God designed it to be deeply personal. 
He designed it to be a one flesh relationship or almost a, not in the reform sense or the real biblical sense, but almost a sacrament that continually binds the heart of a man and a woman together into a covenant. Sexuality was meant to be powerful. Sexuality is powerful. That is why talking about homosexuality is extremely challenging. Sexuality is so powerful that it feels like it defines who you are. We have become so comfortable defining people as heterosexual or homosexual as if sexuality itself represents or equals personhood. It's who I am. No, that's not who you are. Our culture, our our personhood, hear this, is so much bigger and greater and more beautiful than just our sexuality. Our culture has elevated sexuality to the level of identity that God never, ever intended it to be. So why does Paul list homosexuality in verse or chapter 1? He does so because, number one, it is the most vivid example of the exchange of God's glory for another. Most vivid. Two, it demonstrates the depth of brokenness that extends all the way to our most intimate and powerful desires. It reaches the very tippy toes of who we are. And the effect of this in verse 27 is that people are handed over to this behavior that the Bible defines as sin. It is simply a restatement of what we've already seen. That God's response to our exchange is to hand us over to our desires. You want this? It's yours. And that in itself is God's judgment. So homosexuality, impurity, and all manner of unrighteousness are all part of what happens when the tragic exchange of God's glory for our glory takes place. That's all that when, what happens. So, how do I end something like this, right? draw just a few pastoral or personal kind of implications for what we find here. Here's the first thing. And I want you to really take this to heart. First one is that Romans helps us all interpret ourselves and our humanity. This is reading about you and your heart and your condition. This text sheds light on the problem under the problems of all of our lives. It shows us that the real problem for all of us, regardless of our orientations, our past, or our actions, is the exchange of the glory of God for another. That's the problem underneath the problem for every man, woman, or child, Christian or unbeliever. It undergirds everything. And addressing that issue is the most important issue for us. 
When, when the sinful exchange for God's glory, for our own, is fixed, everything else can change. When I become so fixed, fixed on the glory of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I get fixated on that, everything can change. And by God's power, it will change. Secondly, and the second implication, all of us, all, say the word all. 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 All of us have an orientation towards aspects of this tragic exchange. All of us. It's time to put the finger wagon away and start looking at self, right? All of us have this propensity towards moving towards this tragic exchange. Every one of you. The brokenness of our world has gotten all the way down into the fabric of our, our very being. The list of the effects of sin was 21 items long. And if you can't find anything on this list, you're lying to yourself. You're lying. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> right? And I, I'm not going to talk about any of us who are gossips here or do any finger pointing. And a lot of times our gossip is even done in the context of, hey, honey, let me talk to you about this person. She or he is getting underneath my skin. What is that? I'm processing. No, I'm not gossiping. I'm processing. Baloney. It is gossip. And what are we starting to do? We're starting to exchange. We're starting the process. My hope is that you would see that these do not, these things don't define who you are. Yet I want you to acknowledge that there are some people who struggle more than other people in these areas. Just be honest. There are some people who are more, you go, how, how are you back there again? What? Oh, we, just, we just walked through this. Why are you there again? And there are some people, and you know, some of, it, some of you go, that's me. I'm there again. We're more prone to these things. And I hope that Romans 1 helps you understand those struggles better. Number three, another third implication is the story of the tragic exchange is in the Bible so that the gospel can be clear. Paul diagnoses the problem of humanity so that we will see our own desperate need for God to rescue ourselves from the wrath of God and from ourselves. We, we need Jesus to transform our motives. We need Jesus to transform our desires, our, our thinking. We need Him to transform the very actions of our lives. We need Jesus. So we need Him to create in us an appetite, a hunger, a longing that savors the glory of God above our own. Just... I don't know how many of you just hunger and crave for like good food or good drink, and it's just I I can't wait to have that. I want more of that. Lorenz, what do you what do you love to just have? You want to have more of it. 
What was it? That's weird. <laughs> but, Lorenz, I hope that that kind of longing is a very, that it's, it's, you have something bigger that you long for more than barbecue or fries with barbecue sauce. I hope that we all long for, you know, that's kind of a, a, a shadow of something that's greater. God gives us those little images to say, that's good. <laughs> but have you tasted and seen this? This is far greater. Far greater. So we need Him to recreate in us this appetite that savors the glory of God. That it's possible that we can enjoy that personal relationship to the fullest. But here's the last thing. And I want to be absolutely clear about this. So please hear this. My vision and my desire, my hope for our church is that we would be a place that reflects the heart of the Apostle Paul as found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, he gives another list, a laundry list of sins including the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the men who practice homosexuality, thieves, those who are greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. But then he says something so very important that I really want to be about us. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want us to be a church filled with people who are struggling and fighting with all these issues in Romans chapter 1. Including same-sex attraction. I want us to be a place where somebody can come in and just say, you know what, I have been off the wagon. I fell off the wagon again. And we say, welcome. We're not going to give you a back seat. We're going to give you a front seat. In fact, I want you to sit next to me. Maybe not the front seat. Not everybody likes the front seat. The middle, where it's safe. You struggle with, with same-sex attractions. You struggle with, with pornography. You struggle with uh, gossip, gossiping. You, you struggle with adultery. You struggle with this. You fill in the blank. You, you know what? Welcome. For that is who we once were. But you know what? Something has happened to me. I have been gripped by the glory of God as found in Jesus Christ. I have been gripped by it. And He has grabbed hold of my heart. And He is changing me from one degree of glory to another. Ah, uh, Brother, sister, I am on this journey with you. And this is a safe place to grow, to fail, to grow, to fail, to grow, to fail. Come along with me. We're not going to look down on you. We're not going to shame you. Well, sure, there may be discipline, right? It, God disciplines those that He loves. But it's done out of love. Of saying, come on. We want you to be more conformed 
to the image of Christ. So if that fits your fight, I'm sure that you will not always feel like a church is the safest place for you to be. Even for those of you who are here, maybe you don't feel like it's the safest place to be real about who you are. But I want this to be a safe place to be honest and to get help. I want you to know that Missio Day Church wants to extend love and grace and help to you. Because every person in this church is broken. Broken. We're all battling with the same issue. Our willful exchange for the glory of God for our own. Chapter 1 of Romans is in the Bible not because of the long list of sins including homosexuality. It is in the Bible to help us, friends, see our need for the gospel. It is here to give us a vision of what it means to have God's glory at the center of our lives. So God is being gracious, merciful, in showing us how far we have fallen in order that we may wake up to the need of the gospel again today. Amen? Let's pray.